Hello and welcome to the Stadio podcast. I'm Musa Kwonga. I'm Ryan Hun. Ryan, how are you doing? I'm right, thanks. How are you? How was your weekend? I'm actually really melancholic. I've been listening to the new Kano album, Hoodies All Summer, and every time I've listened to it, which is many times now, I've just reviewed it for Crack Magazine. Little plug. Plug, absolutely. Early plug. I, but I keep thinking, I wish my younger cousins had had this growing up. I wish they'd had this in North London. And it makes me really sad because I think it would have been a very healing album at a time when they really needed to be understood. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, I'm quite, it's, it's melancholic, not because it's not an amazing album. It is amazing. I think it actually is a kind of, I think it's like a British Illmatic, actually. Nice. Yeah. I think wow, it's that, high I th- praise. I think it's that good. And I love Nas, so yeah. yeah. I'm melancholic because I went out on the weekend like a silly boy. Oh no. I'm too old for this, Musa. What did you do? Well, one of my best friends was in town. There's a thing in Berlin, happens once a year, at the Kraftwerk complex, which is Trezor and all of these kind of big clubs. It's called a tonal. Yeah. It's like a four-day electronic music thing. A couple of friends were playing back-to-back. I can't remember which room they were in. But anyway, I thought it was going to be like, you know, Friday night kind of vibes and I could have a late night. But yeah. when he got here, he was staying with me for a few days. He was like, oh yeah, we're playing at 4.30 till 7.30 a.m. Oh my goodness. So I went to bed on Friday night really late, got a few hours sleep, set my alarm, got up, had a coffee, bowl of cereal, like 4 a.m., pegged it down, oh there, goodness. Pegged it down there on my bike and was... Uh, I was in the club until like half eight. <laughs> That's a good night. Whenever I go out in Berlin, sometimes I go out because some clubs are open until, you know, like 24 hours or 36 hours or whatever. Yeah. And I'm, I'm a big fan of getting an early night, getting up early, getting showered and going in for like the morning bit because you walk into a club all fresh and nice and clean. Yeah, that's crisp. And everyone's been in there for like eight hours. And it's just like, but, I've, um, I've never been out that late. To be, I've never started a night out that late. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is quite surreal because you get up and, you know, you have your coffee and then all of a sudden, half an hour later, you're in a club. It's very odd. It's only, it's, I'd never done it before I'd moved here. But yeah, and then you're kind of out again. People are just starting their day. And you go home again and it's kind of like, this is my morning, but I've already been in a club and been up for five hours. <laughs> that is amazing. <laughs> oh, do you know what? There was yeah, a, yeah. It's football related though. There was a guy in one of the other clubs in that complex. It's called Om. Uh, it's actually probably one of my favourite clubs in Berlin. Really small. But there was a guy in there who had a cap and glasses and stubble and I was looking at him for probably like 10 solid minutes and I was convinced it was Jürgen Klopp. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there's a lot of people that are Jürgen yeah, Klopp. But I was like, hang on, when are Liverpool playing this weekend? And I had to, I, I, I literally <laughs> got Fotbob out in the club to check the fixtures. I was like, oh, they're playing tonight. All right, it's definitely not Jürgen Klopp. And obviously it wasn't Jürgen Klopp, but I nearly semi-jokingly tweeted Jürgen Klopp's at a tonal. Do you know what's funny? There's a lot of people in Bern that look like Jürgen Klopp and there's a lot of people in Bern who look like Bernardo Silva. It's uncanny. I've seen, I haven't seen anyone else look like, I haven't seen as many people who could be body doubles for a footballer as Bernardo Silva. Now with Lucas Torreira's new techno haircut. What is going on there? Is it like... Lucas Torreira, he's just doing a DJ side project. I would love it. Can it DJ Torreira, no one would believe it. But Lucas Torreira is such a DJ name It is well. amazing, yeah. It's amazing. Just like... He went straight from the North London derby to DC10 in Ibiza. Was it techno or trance? It's trance, I suppose. No, I think he's a solid techno guy. Okay, that's fair enough. Let's do some, let's do some football. Sorry. Yeah, well, after that jolly intro, we're starting on a bit of a somber note this week, aren't we? We are, we are. Um, so we're starting with Romelu Lukaku receiving monkey charts against Cagliari. So for some context, Romelu Lukaku has moved to Inter. Um, and he's doing well there. I think he's now scored two goals in two games. And the second of those goals came... A penalty, second half penalty against Cagliari to put his team up 2-1, to put into 2-1 up against Cagliari. And before he took the penalty, he received monkey chance after he scored. He gave the crowd a very pointed look and jogged away. And there's a lot to discuss here. So let's kind of just get straight into it. Well, I mean, it came a few hours after Graham Souness about Moise Keane on Super Sunday. Yeah, right, right. I mean, actually, when we, when we, we talk about the, sort of the Souness thing, let's uh, sort of quickly go into it. So there's a sort of one-minute segment where Graham Souness on Sky Sports talks about Moise Keane and his move to Everton and saying, look, he's really undervalued. Um, why is that? Maybe there are character issues. He compares Moise Keane's departure from Juventus to Emmanuel Adebayo's departure from Arsenal, saying that maybe a reason these players were sold for not that much money is because they had character flaws, issues that we don't know about, because otherwise, why else would Juventus sell a player that good for that kind of money. Now, Gabriele Marcotti said, maybe a player like Moise can get sold for that sum of money because he's got one year on his contract, he wants out, his agent wants out, um, and the club don't want to lose him for nothing a year later. And 
Mark Otte, again, on the money. And also the wider issue being that, you know, Moise Keane got racially abused uh, at Cagliari, as Lukaku did, as I mentioned before. And the Italian authorities, I think the FIGC, didn't protect him, didn't, pr- didn't uh, punish Cagliari. And it was, you know, it was pretty clear. If you look at like, what Marcel Brand said, the um, sporting director at Everton, it's pretty clear between the lines when Marcel Brands welcomes Keane to Everton and says, we'll look after your son. There's an element that, you know, Juventus didn't look after, you know, Mrs. Keane's um, son. And so to me, it's like, for Graham Souness to be that ignorant and for Sky not to challenge him and say, actually, like, there may be wider issues about the fact that Keane was racially abused and feel supported. The fact that Sky didn't get into that really troubles me because, look, we're, this is bigger than football. We're living in an era where look, we're based obviously in Berlin and in a state that surrounds Berlin, Brandenburg, we've just been the far-right AFD have a surge in the polls. In the state next to Berlin, Saxony, they've had a surge in the polls. And we're in a time where I think sport has a unique opportunity to take a lead and say what is and what isn't acceptable. And when you see these institutions routinely turn a blind eye, when you see these large popular institutions, and Sky Sports is definitely an institution, turn a blind eye to these things and encourage stereotypes, you know, Moyes Keane, the black guy who's got character flaws, who's a bit slack. And there's no indication that Keane was ever trouble at Juventus. In the context we're in politically, I think it's even more dangerous. The thing about the Graham Souness thing for me is that the references just don't make sense. And the reasons don't make sense, apart from the one obvious thing that we know right. is, the, is the link there. Yeah. He's been quoted before saying that he doesn't really do any research in terms of statistics or anything before he goes on air because anyone can do that. It's one thing to speculate on a statistical trend and get it wrong. Right. But in this scenario, Moise Keane, if the add-ons get paid, Juve have made 30 million euros off him, off a guy in, their, in the last year of his contract. And also, they're still trying to balance the books after signing Delict. Ramsey's wages are huge. And obviously, they spent that huge amount of money on Cristiano Ronaldo last season. You know, there are financial implications there as to why they would have made a move on someone like Moise Kane, who would have had limited starting opportunities this season. With that front line, yeah. Financially, it makes total sense. So he was saying it doesn't make any sense. And to go straight for the character thing. And the fact that he brought in Adebayo was the clincher because anyone that is even a casual observer of football, I mean, how else do you drag in Adebayo? I mean, it's so weird because you're watching the clip and going, wait, I mean, Adebayo is like light years away in terms of their character profiles and the challenges they had. And actually with Adebayo, we know now a lot of that, a lot of the stuff happening off the field, the family related stuff. I mean, Adebayo, if anything, was too responsible. If Adebayo had been as selfish as, we, as he should have been maybe to preserve his career, he wouldn't have been draining money to all members of his family. Do you know what, right? Also, with the Adebayor thing, Arsenal got £25 million for Adebayor in 2009. Right. What's Arsene Wenger's record like for selling players at the right time? Pretty good. Unbelievable, yeah. Was Adebayor ever as deadly as he was at Arsenal really afterwards? Not really. Maybe for a period at City he was. But £25 million at that time in 2009 when Arsenal were massively financially hamstrung. And if Arsene Wenger didn't come out and go after his character then why the hell is Graham Souness going after it? Right. So this happening in the afternoon and then Romelu Lukaku getting racially abused at the same place that Moise Keane did last season. Right. And not just Moise Keane, by the way. Melissa Reddy wrote a really good tweet about it, just super, super short. Yeah. 2017, this is at Cagliari. No punishment for racist chanting at Montari. The quote was, couldn't really be heard. 2018, no sanction can be brought for abuse of Blaise Matuidi. Uh, May this year, Monkey chance at Moise Keane, limited relevance to race, was the, was the, the quote. And now Romelu Lukaku. I'm thinking now, Matuidi, when I saw Keane getting chance, it explains now my, why Matuidi was so quick on the scene. That explains so much about it. And, you know, if you say to Graham, because Graham Souness is interesting, because there was a story, I think, um, Howard Gale was discussing how he stood up for himself in certain contexts. And, and Graham Souness stood up for him. Graham Souness stood up for a black player. So it's complex in the sense that Graham, Graham Souness, if he sees a clear case, of injustice, right? Racial injustice. I think that's why he feels very affronted by people calling him racist or like saying his statements are racist because, you know, he signed Mark Walters. He, he had Mark Walters, I think, at, I think he signed him but managed him at, at Rangers. So it's complex. But the thing with Souness is, I genuinely think, can I be brutal here? I think he divides people into sort of well-behaved and not so well-behaved. It goes in with the pace and power thing. Yeah. It's the lack of football intelligence, athleticism, pace and power, problematic character. 
the associations, I think the character associations with blackness. Can are, I, can, sorry, yeah. just so, before yeah. you, just on that, I think that broadcasters and institutions such as football clubs have a massive responsibility to lead by example. I agree. And whether Graham Souness meant it to sound the way that he did or whether he was genuinely kind of, you know, maybe playing devil's advocate a little bit, giving him more like leniency than I should. Yeah. But that should not have been said and broadcasters should have guidelines to normalise the language used around players of colour compared to white players. Do you know what I mean? And they should really, really go into it because the pace and power thing gets used too much. And it's not that that's the problem. It's the fact that when that goes unchecked and it becomes normal, yes. then it breeds into wider things. It's like a, it's the same thing with calorie and with football clubs. Like so many people, they look to their football clubs as, it's almost like religious in a way. Well, they're meant to be their institutions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, some of them, rowing clubs, social yeah. clubs. And basically, if you had clubs really, really coming out, changing the discourse on a, on a mass level. Oh my God, thank you. It, it's not going to happen overnight. But then people would follow. Can I say this, actually? I, I, I I've love, botched I, that. No, but, no, 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 no. You've said it perfectly. I'm actually thinking the reason why I've been quiet for a while is because I'm like sort of agreeing and really coming in on this. So I'm, I'm really angry about this. Okay. So I've just pitched an article to three different publications. I'm not sure if either of them, any of them accept it. We had the story about Clemens Tonnies, the chairman of Schalke, who made these racist remarks about, African play, about Africans recently. I think we discussed the last, last podcast. The Ethics Committee of the German FA, the DFB, came out and said, although the, although the remarks were racist, we're not going to sanction him because he's proven beyond doubt that he is not a racist. That was the decision of the German FA's ethics committee. Now, to me, that is not an organisation that takes anything seriously because it's saying, oh, he didn't mean it, therefore we're not going to punish him. Now, let me tie this back to something you said before about institutions having a responsibility to take a lead. Here's a specific example. A friend of mine said, and she's Afro-German heritage, like born in family, been in Germany for several generations, uh, African heritage, but Afro-German. She's been in Germany, her family, for three generations, I think. And she said specifically the first time she felt unafraid of a German flag, the first time she felt she could cheer along with Germans was seeing 2006 World Cup, a multicultural team, and seeing black players come into the three. Jerome Boateng is a huge cultural figure in Germany for that reason. Because why? Because he educated people through football in this argument that we cannot use football to educate people when we clearly can. When football clearly enables wider oppression. I talked about in a Dave Brannock's piece last week, a superb piece he wrote for Bloody Hell magazine, when Hansa Rostock played Stuttgart. And what makes me angry he, is that Dave in that piece talks about how nationalism is encouraged on the terraces, right? Now, if nationalism can be encouraged on the terraces and monkey chants and racism can be orchestrated on the terraces, we're supposed to think that, so, oh, it's fine for them to educate the public. It's fine for them to shape the discourse about black people through monkey chants, but we can't challenge it, no, because that's society's problem. And I find that a very insidious line of argument because whenever John Barnes makes it, it enables commentators to leave the issue alone. It enables a lot of white fans to go, oh, it's not really an issue, it's a football society issue. My whole thing is, what's your proposal then? Where's your education programme? What are the institutions that really matter? Because let's not forget, I know that football's drifted a long way from its working class origins in many, in many cases. Let's not forget how many of these clubs are social clubs. Look at Berry Football Club as a classic example. Everyone's talking about Berry right, throughout football as a club that's gone to the wall. Why? Not because they great, played great football. They didn't, because they were a great social institution. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting how football clubs, oh, they're social institutions until it comes to race. All of a sudden, oh no, they're just passive observers. They're not passive observers. And what gets me so much about this, and I tweeted this the other day, is that the thing that will allow fascism to succeed is not the brilliance of the fascists. It is the cowardice and the impotence and the ignorance and the complacency of people looking the other way. Absolutely. I feel like football clubs are abandoning their sense of social responsibility. Yeah, they are on multiple levels. And you see it with, I'm an Arsenal fan, as people yeah. know. And one of the things that I really enjoy kind of moving it slightly is the fact that over the last few years, they've really pushed for inclusion on stuff. And, you know, they've put a lot of emphasis on fan groups, you know, like Gay Gunas have like a real presence there. Yeah. There's a banner went up in the stadium recently on their social media. They are very, very proactive with stuff like that. And the worst thing you can do is read the comments. Yeah. But as we've said a million times before, no football club has a perfect fan base. Absolutely. And, you know, Jonathan Harding nailed it. He was saying that, you know, why do people follow football clubs? Because they buy into the values of them in Germany. You know, why are people St. Pauli fans in Hamburg? Is because they are anti-fascist, anti-homophobic, you know, anti-racist. And that's what they, why they follow their Absolutely. local club and yeah. various other points. And to be fair to German football clubs, 
the fan groups are on the whole way more proactive at demonstrating or highlighting issues like this on Look, the terraces. Dortmund, Dortmund had their far right element and the Dortmund worked so hard to get rid of that. Yep. And I want to talk, I want, I want to shout out, sorry to just jump in, but you highlighted Arsenal. I want to highlight clubs that have had these far right elements and, and really driven them to the margins. So Millwall, obviously Dortmund in Germany have done a great job with that to a large extent. Millwall as well. Millwall had a real problem and they worked so hard. South Bermondsey, local people getting the job done and really pushing that conversation to the margins. Yeah. So it can be done. On all levels, when it comes to equality or discrimination, football as a sport, individual clubs and the media has to step up. Yep. Everyone has to do their small bit because it really isn't that fucking difficult. Yes. Yes, really. absolutely. It's not hard it's at all. It's not people underestimate how the small things can have an impact on the whole. If you stop using stuff like pace and power for someone who isn't faster than another white midfielder, or you start viewing players of colour and describing them in the same language that you would describe white players, you know, if, a, if, the, if the guy is absolutely hench and mega powerful, sure, right, use the power thing. But the thing is, then you just never get the technique commented on or the intelligence of movement you right. know what i mean it's just lazy because people have never been checked for it before and the right. thing is now the people the thing that these people don't realize like sooner or whatever is that people see it yes everyone is watching you you can't half step anymore and that, you know that, I mean? that not video, that you yeah. ever should have been able to right. right but you cannot anymore you can't and unfortunately it's on a predominantly white run industry to force those changes so therefore, inevitably, they will come slower than they need to. Much slower. But they, they have to come. Yeah, and it's not, there is no time for mucking around, you know, because you just can't. It's just can't. I mean, how many times have we had this conversation, Musa? Yeah, really? exactly. Exactly. And Once a week, maybe the, in some form. And the reason why it's become such an urgent conversation is because, like I say, the wider political context is severe. Like, yeah. it's, you know, football cannot be divorced from its context, um, its wider context. And we're hearing more of this stuff. Like, it lives, in, it lives in a very much a financial bubble at the right. very, very top. Obviously, yeah. you've seen the kind of other side of that with stuff that's happened with like Berry and Bolton and stuff. Yeah. But that bubble can only go so far. Right. Because the people who are like feeding that bubble have to put up with this stuff all the time. Yeah. You know, like they are quick enough to draw on black people for some slick marketing campaigns when new kits drop but they don't want to do the work in order to make those people's lives easier on some level. Do you know what right, I mean? Or right. do the work in order to eventually create that. Does yes. that make sense? Absolute sense. There's a great saying, isn't there, about sort of how black culture is used for cool, but how the second black people need something, people run away. Yeah. And someone said it best, everyone wants to be black until it's time to be black. Exactly. And that's it really, yeah. The real sad thing about this, speaking as a white person and obviously understanding that this is a reality that I don't have to experience day to day, but I really hope that we stop having these conversations soon because the instances of this happening are way, way less frequent. But there's just, it's just kind of like, we kind of know it's not going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I, and I look, put it this way, um, I'm having conversations about race in football and more generally, more frequently than I've ever had them before. Like they come, as in they come up in conversation, people will talk about these issues more and more, like this is a society-wide thing. But if I look at just the lens of football, these issues are arising more often. And it's not because people will say, oh, is that because there's more social media and because people are making more attention? No, like these incidents are increasing. You compare this to 2003, 2004, we were talking about Arsenal-Chelsea rivalry, United, like we were not talking about race in football this at this because there was not the same intensity. And it wasn't just the social media age. I don't think it was that. I really think that you look society-wide, politically, these things, something, something is resurgent. I don't think any, even the most, I don't want to say woke, I hate that term. It just means self-aware. Right, but even the most self-aware or whatever white person isn't blameless. You always have to move forward and try and do better and do better and influence the people who are around you, pull them up on when stuff like this happens. You know, it's the same when if someone starts slagging off women's football and if you're in a group of friends or whatever, it's just like, no, the, the, the kind of old racist uncle thing, pull them up on it. Exactly. They're not going to deck you. Right, right. You know what I mean? Sure. Thank you. And if right. they do, then cut them off. Yeah, right. End of. 
metaphorically. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, should we take a break and then talk about some football? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. back from the break um this week we're going to do something a little bit different and we might do this for the next few weeks if we have enough because yep. basically we're going to put two up this week we're going to do shout outs on that one as well and we're also going to do all the questions so we're going to have a basically a mailbag episode that we're going to put up late wednesday night so if you're commuting on thursday morning it should be in your podcast bit in your podcast bit <laughs> on thursday morning because basically we have loads of questions and it actually we wanted to give more time to them yeah that's so, so good yeah for now, I think maybe we'll run with this if we get enough questions. We'll do the mailbags as a separate thing because they're just kind of really good questions and yeah, we, can't fit them. we can't fit all of those and all of the football stuff into one episode. So and we might frankly, two. And frankly, let's, let's face it, if there's anything football needs more online, it's more content. So It definitely needs more podcasts. More and better content. <laughs> definitely. We're, we're <laughs> announcing we're going eight days a week. Listen, <laughs> <laughs> there was a guy at uni, it was legendary because... <laughs> He divided his working week such that he created an eighth day. Oh, wow. Yeah, he took the entire like working week and he decided, like, if I sleep eight times at specific points, I've created an eight-day week. That's clever. And he then revised accordingly. Yeah, wow, that's good. Yeah. Um, but anyway, on to the football. So the biggest game, Manchester City 4, Brighton 0. <laughs> <laughs> the only re- you know I go there, actually. The reason I'm starting this is because... a good game, that, actually. It was, but the reason I go about this is because Guardiola has this way of, like, oh, it's so great how teams come out and attack us. You know, Brighton really had a go. And I'm like, dude, you, you drilled them 4-0. Yeah, 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 come on. Let's, yeah. let's keep it moving. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I wish more teams played like that against us. Yeah, sure you do, Pep. Yeah. I bet you do. There was a time in his uh, second season when he was like, oh, the, the hardest game we have is Bournemouth. Bournemouth really came out. I was like, dude, you killed them. Like, you killed them like 4-1, 4-0. I was like, you killed them. Hey, Bournemouth. but Brighton had chances. Brighton could have scored. And, and I think, did. again, you know, they're not going to chalk that up as a, as a place they could probably take points. That's right. So... Right, that's that one done. Okay, and yep. uh, that's the end of the show. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, for thanks. Listening. <laughs> <laughs> are we going to talk about what are we going to talk about? We're we going to talk about the North London derby. Yeah, yeah, we have to. Uh, we will because it was AKA such an interesting game. The best fixture in the Premier League. Yeah, it, it is, isn't it? It is. It is great. It's great. I can't remember the last time there was a poor North London derby. The reason it's so interesting is because the form team very often ends up getting upended. Or the sort of the, the, the short end the of it. The Derby formula, isn't it? That's true, but there's something else going on here, I think, because this is about balance of power. Like Arsenal are arguably within touching distance of overwhelming or going ahead of Spurs this season. They've got the tools, but Emery is still assembling the tools in the correct order, fashion. So you'll see someone like Nicolas Pepe that has, you know, a difficult game, but you know, it was brilliant against Liverpool. And it's funny how there's not the benefit of the doubt. People are like, oh, Pepe was awful. It's like, dude, he was amazing against Liverpool. Like, can we not have some... But he still made memes out of a few people. Right, thank you. I just think... That, I, mean, I don't want to get too much into sort of old man shouting at cloud as I've done before with like, social media, but like, hey, where's the... Like, where's the moderation? He's only been back in training a couple of weeks or a few weeks. Like. And it's a derby. It's a derby. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, I, I just think... So interesting issues going on there. I mean, Spurs is fighting because there are so many perspectives which could view Spurs' performance in this two-all draw. You could say, oh, Spurs, lackluster. Well, yeah, lackluster. They got two points away against City and Arsenal. Very handy points at the <laughs> yeah, end of the season. Very I handy. mean, this was, I, I tweeted about this, about how it was like such a boring fence-sitting take, but probably with a little bit of distance, a good point for both sides. Yeah. Considering the context that Arsenal were unbelievable for the first eight minutes and then terrible for the rest of the first half. Right. And Spurs blitzed them. The inevitable happened, Harry Kane penalty in a derby. And then Arsenal's second half was absolutely brilliant. The thing I found really interesting, though, about this compared to the same fixture last season was that last season, the tactics from both managers were unbelievable. I think both sides played three systems within the 90 minutes. Wow. And it was a real chess game. You know, I hate that kind of cliche. Yeah, going still, to hang on, what's the cliche oh, count today? The chess game. Yeah, that's the first one we've done today, actually. Is it? Yeah, okay. I think that's the first one. But this time round, the tactical stuff kind of went out the window, and it was just. I saw tactics, but I saw. I mean, look at the first half Spurs, right? And Harry Winks was a good example of this. wasn't really in the game that much, 
some of his passing went astray and a lot of Spurs passing through the middle filled, felt astray. But they very much were on the front foot with the passing and they were looking to hit the man early. And the speed that Spurs moved the ball through midfield in the first half in particular was the key difference. The speed they got that into the final third was so impressive. And that to me, I mean, you look at, you know, Son as an example of someone that plays on the front foot. One touch, two touch movement. Incredibly progressive play by Spurs. I'm not going to lie, when he got taken off, I was Yeah, well, everyone's really, he, yeah, I mean, he, what a player that guy is. Yeah. Um, and it felt like Arsenal got more of a hold on that in the second half and came into the game. Gwendozi, you know, oh, superb. I thought superb. he was man of the match, to be honest. Super, actually, Ian Wright came out straight after the game was like, to do that in North London Derby at 20. His assist for Aubameyang's goal. Wow. You know, we kind of had the uh, the Carbonara treatment for De Bruyne's past a few weeks ago, <laughs> but this was if not. David, this if, is not a Carbonara. If David Silver had done that, oh <laughs> yeah, <laughs> put some spice in there. I'm trying to think of an equivalent. What's a really highly technical dish to accomplish, but maybe doesn't look that good? Answers on a tweet, please. Yeah, it's true. But anyway, it was the opposite to a Carbonara. Yeah, I think. And the finish was glorious too. It was really Actually, lovely. The finish was glorious. I mean, it was weird because what's the thing about the pass makes the run? That was an example. Uh, Gwendozi's assist was pass makes the run. But there was such little time to even make that call. It was just, I mean, I've watched replays of it over and over again and I still, I still think it's just unbelievable. It was a little bit Alex Song. Remember Alex Song oh. at his best? A li- you remember that? That yeah. kind of angled pass. Oh, was do I? Yeah, but there's a ball that Iniesta plays again, typically. Um, oh, here we go. On the half volley, when Iniesta gets it and ha- plays it on the half volley, like with a side foot. And he sort of opens his body up. Um, he's, he's sort of side on to the goal and the ball comes and it hits us with like a bounce pass, which is a sort of similar thing. It's a very sort of touch pass. And what I love is that Gwendozi has so many different things in his, in his locker. Another cliche. Oh. But proud, a proud cliche. I own, I own my cliches. I don't, oh, I don't, I'm, I'm straight in. So a player with tremendous potential and somebody said on social media, like, why does he prefer Torreira over Gwendozi? Why does he play them side by side? And I think that he's just figuring out the right configuration, Emery. And I think that, you know, time, give, give, look, I know it's not the most fashionable thing to say, but again, it is the issue here. Look, those two teams in the Premier League, Liverpool and Man City, are frankly in their own orbit. Not necessarily just because of the quality of they're playing, but the stage of their development. And Arsenal are incorporating a lot of new pieces. They're getting rid of some pieces. Mkhitaryan looks like he's on his way to Roma. That yeah. looks like a good thing for both player and club, frankly. Isn't it interesting how both players in that swap deal have just completely nosedived in terms of form? Horrifying. Isn't it bizarre? It's really bizarre. They both ended up in Serie A. Sanchez was more understandable in terms of the nosedive because that is something that was foreshadowed. I mean, Wenger, if Wenger gets rid of a player that good, yeah. it's normally, a, if Wenger wants to sell to you, it's normally a bad sign. Like run away. Yeah, it's a bad sign, um, generally speaking. Um, unless you're Clichy or Samir Nasri, who were both very good players who left for different reasons. But Mkhitaryan is a sadder case because here is a player that was the brains of the Dortmund attack. And I wonder if he ever thinks, mm, got Mourinho'd. Should have hung around. Yeah. He got Mourinho'd. <laughs> Mourinho's looking scarily good as a pundit on Sky Sports. He's constantly surrounded by three or four people who just lap up every single word that you're saying. It's just, that's, yeah, a, but, that's a good crowd. But he's marketing himself for the Bayern Munich job, isn't he? Good crowd. Yes, he he's marketing himself. Yeah. But yeah, a few questions around some of Emery's decisions. Um, because I think Willock would have probably added a little more dynamism than what um, Mkhitaryan offered. And Mkhitaryan gave the ball away cheaply a lot when he came on. He didn't really look fully comfortable. Mm. And obviously now we've said that he's, you know, he looks like he's off to Roma. I'm not sure if that's a, a loan deal or a permanent transfer. I think that going forward, if Arsenal are going to play this 4-3-3, I'd like to see Torreira as the deepest and maybe with someone like Guendouzi and Ceballos or Willock. I think that that's a really good three because the thing about Torreira, which is really good, is that he's obviously quite snappy in the tackle, but also he's very direct with his passing. He's always very proactive, very forward. He's, mm. you know, um, and I think that he's kind of quicker at moving the ball than, than Jacker is. And that going forward, I think in games like this, I think would probably be a better shout. What I will say, I mean, there was a, again, a great tweet from at Grace on Football, really critiquing that front three of Aubameyang, Lacazette and Pepe and saying that that's a kind of... <laughs> I mean, she used sort of slightly less <laughs> polite language than I'm using here. But effectively, Grace was saying that that is not necessarily a smart person's idea or version of the Liverpool front three. 
And the problem with Pepe and the Firmino analogy is, unfortunately, and I saw what Mourinho was saying, but Firmino does a lot of pressing and defensive work and playmaking and passing and just having Pepe sit deeper doesn't turn him into Firmino. Do you know what I mean? No, for sure. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Heavy lies the crown. Yeah, but actually, I I think like Lacazette played that role quite well yesterday. He was tracking back quite a lot and sometimes he was the deeper out of the three. Mm. You know, I think he get, doesn't get a lot of, enough credit for actually the thinking with, play, but yeah. then you want him right thank there. Thank you, thank you. Know you. I mean? Lacazette is like an evol- a highly evolved Tony Cotty. You know, I love oh. Tony. Yeah, you know, Tony wow. Cotty back what in the shout. day. Wonderful player. He was superb uh, for West Ham and Everton. And I see a lot of him in Lacazette and I see a lot of Marcelo Salas in Lacazette, like the close control, the finishing. And like you said, you need that person advance. That's yes. your spearhead. Yeah. So uh, Emery's counter argument to all the critiques would be, hang on a minute. I want the configuration of the front three to work. And no, you're not going to like it. But actually, my calculation is this. My calculation is that the front three are potent enough to score the goals to keep this team moving forward in the table while we wait for the fullbacks to return. Mm-hmm. If I have the fullbacks, if I have the attack play more conservatively just to balance the team out while we wait for the fullbacks to return, by the time the fullbacks return, the front three will not be knitted together. And we know for a fact the Premier League is determined not primarily by the quality of defence, but by the offensive firepower. And Manchester United in particular have suffered so much in the last few years, not because their defence was weak, which has been a problem, but because their attack was not coordinated. And smart teams in the Premier League are extremely difficult to beat if your attack is not sorted. Example again, Liverpool, 50 goals conceded when they came second under Brendan Rodgers. Why? Could they have a defence that bad? Because they scored 101 goals. And I think that is what Emery has in mind in a sense not specifically that season but that concept of we'll concede a few but our attack will be razor sharp oh, I'd, I'd take 5-4 wins every week and so would Emery you know I mean? so would Emery so elsewhere in the Premier League Trent Alexander-Arnold scored a deflected Carbonara pass <laughs> I'm not going at him for that let him live let the boy live let the boy live let him hey, live I'm glad his... he didn't try and claim it that was nice let him live his truth because it was try... a clear deflection yeah. but yeah Sadio Mane a little bit missed with Mo Salah I mean there was a couple of times where you're like Mo come on I know you've not scored today Mo but someone showed he was right there. Yeah, but someone showed a great piece of footage and some said, yeah, actually, Mane did this in the, uh, in the uh, Liverpool derby. And it was much worse because it was 1-0 Liverpool and <laughs> Mane was through and there were three players there were a square few to. times last and season like, where we were like, they don't want to pass to each other anymore. What's going on? I just think they're strikers. Yeah. Look, I mean, strikers don't, a lot of them don't pass in those positions. Well, you're, you were essentially a striker, right? I was a pass-first striker. Um, yeah, all right. Listen, <laughs> yeah, all right. what gives you the impression, like my demeanour on this podcast, listeners, faithful listeners to this podcast will know that my demeanour is that of a pass-first. No, it's not, is it, Ryan? No. You, the, the amount of thirst traps you post on Instagram, you're definitely a striker. I don't know. Listen, can I just say two things? Firstly, I do not post thirst traps on Instagram. Secondly... You are, you do, because you criticise people when they post thirst traps. So when they don't pass you the ball... That's not but true. then you'll post the thirst trap, which is pure greed. I have never. That's totally it. I've you never are, criticized. Totally. I've never criticized anybody else posting thirst traps on Instagram. Never. Sure, sure, never. We follow you. I categorize. I categorize. Musa, I see you. <laughs> Do you know what? Do you know what? the things I endure for this podcast? Let's let's go. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Liverpool won. They're exposing, top of the league. Exposing Maximum my points. I'm going to expose your musical, your mysterious musical past. One oh, day. Don't. It's boring. No one cares about that. People like pictures of your booty. <laughs> uh, you're going to keep that in. You're going to keep that in. You can should I keep that. In? Yeah, keep it. In. Okay, cool. So, so that, that's a thirst trap. You're a thirst trap. I am. I am. Carry on. Thirsty Musa. <laughs> <laughs> Man, Liverpool. Liverpool three 0 against Burnley. Great results. Yeah. Do we need to talk about that though? No, we, we don't. don't. Right. No, we don't. Uh, let's Good talk about Southampton. Manchester United. All I can say is Daniel James. Thank you. Wonderful goal. The inverted I am Robin. Encouraging performance. Yes, very much so. Um, cutting in off the um, left flank, right-footed stripe, superb. Lovely goal. Yes, United otherwise lacking luster and on course for a predictably difficult season. They've got rid of or marginalised many of the players who were a challenge or problem last season. Fellaini has gone, Lukaku has gone, and I'm happy for and Lukaku. Herrera. I'm happy for Lukaku. Herrera's gone, and we don't hear much about him at the moment. He's kind of gone off the radar. Chris Smalling off to Roma. I mean, he'll have a great time out there too. Good luck to all these players, of course, because, you know, careers are short, life is short. Enjoy yourselves. Hey, guys. Just yeah. enjoy yourselves. Enjoy yourselves. <laughs> the players left behind them, the squad is somewhat threadbare and the team will struggle because it's just not that good a team. Mm. It's not that good a team. Yeah, they need to sort their midfield out. Quick they shot. Do. Yeah. But uh, a good point for Saints, especially after they went down to 10 men, although it was quite near the end. I mean, not being funny, but a one-all draw against a 10-man 
Atlanta team. James Martin was saying it from ESPN, was saying on Twitter, like, when United ever going to score against a 10-man Saints team? <laughs> when they're drawing one all. Uh, elsewhere in the Premier League, Everton 3, Wolves 2. This was a cracker of a game. I love that. Do you know, there's so many things I love about that game. I love that it came so early in the season. I love that it's the first time the, Ars- the Everton, sorry. I love it. Sorry. <laughs> See, <laughs> Arsenal 2.0. Everton or Arsenal 2.0, I'm telling no, you. They're not. They I are, lo- they oh are. my God. I love that it's the first time the Everton strike force fully fired decisively this season. You know, I just love so much about it. Like it's, it's almost like a, it's almost a battle for sixth and seventh place. Really? Potentially. Potentially. Potentially, 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 potentially higher. And that's why I'm sad about the Sooners comments because they overshadowed, they, they, they dominated um, the conversation at a time. And what the, the key thing here was the fact that Richarlison came through as he's been doing so often. Moise Keane looking good. I just loved so much about this game. Alex Iwobi, two and two. Hey man. What a header as well. I've not really seen that in, the, in his locker. There's another cliche. Levels, levels, levels. I'm glad that he seems to be happy. I just want Alex Iwobi to be okay. The boy will be fine. The boy will be fine. Look at that. Look at the sporting director. Like, I'll take care of your son. I mean, that's yeah. the that's the mentality of that club. I, uh, I I I like this Everton team. I really like it. I really like it. And I got a very concerned email from a friend of mine, Daniel Tasker. He was very concerned. He said, "Oh, you're, you know, you're, you're um, among other things." He was concerned about. I mean, he actually had a very radical solution. He was like, "We should scrap the offside rule," which was again <laughs> very radical. But I thought I'd throw it in there because I love Daniel. But Daniel also said, "Look, like you're." You're boosting Everton too much in your podcast, as if I had the power to <laughs> influence the fate. And he said, look, I, I just worry about us. I worry we might sort of lurk near the relegation zone. And my thing is, look, I feel like this Everton they're a bit different. I feel this Everton team's a bit different. I think they've got teeth this time and they have the firepower and it will click and it's going to be exciting. I just think they're going to really grow into the season as well. I agree. Oh, there's another cliche. Oh, God. That's three, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's more than that. You're two one up. We should have a tiebreaker. Do I win the golden boot? No, it's best of five. Your okay. two went up. We got we got two more cliches to go. Uh, so that's Premier League done. Oh my god! Let's go to the Bundesliga. Union beat Dortmund three one. Their first Bundesliga win. This was incredible. I had two friends at the game, actually three friends, three friends at the game, and they were just delirious. They were so excited before the match, like you know, Union fans. Yeah, I mean it's the first time that Dortmund had come there. It was obviously in the Bundesliga, but I think I'm not sure they've been out to Kerpenick before. They've played them before, and they've been close games actually quite recently. But for Dortmund to go there and be beaten the way they were beaten and some really slick passing football for Union. They've got the pace on the counter. They do have the pace on the counter. Um, that's, I think, one of their key strengths. You saw that even in, in the defeat, the, the thrashing by RB Leipzig. You saw the potential for them to surge forward. So I never really, really worried about them, but I never expected them to get to grips so quickly with this. Now, there was a couple of critiques of um, Dortmund. Dortmund have defensive problems, no question. It's why they brought in Hummels. Akanji looked ropey against Union. That will have to be, um, they'll have to sort of stamp that out. Something going on there as well because of the, there was some stuff about Hummels going on to, you know, the kind of captain's committee or the team committee in German, Mannschaftsrat, mm. for uh, those of you who want to know what the German word is. And I think he took the place of Akanji and I think that miffed Akanji a little bit. And I don't know if there's any issues there. Maybe yeah, I'm not being funny, but I mean, Akanji's not going to blame that for that touch that let Union in. One no. of the goals. I mean, and what was worrying for Dortmund was even with Julian Brandt there from the very beginning. Yeah, his first start. They didn't create as much as they could have done. No, I mean, this is a very Dortmund 2018-2019 performance, especially towards the end of the season. And we said, we've said it the last couple of weeks, they can't keep giving teams one goal leads. And to be fair, Marius Bulsa's first goal was a really nice finish yeah. off that corner. Really yeah. lovely work corner. Jane Sancho picked up another assist for Paco. They, they equalised, what, three minutes later? Yeah. It was a really lovely pass, actually. And you thought, all right, here we go, kind of thing. There was a couple of times Paco had a real, really good opportunity to lay someone in. Can I say didn't. this? Can I say this? It's going to be really harsh. Oh, no. On the counter-attack, he went a bit Sissoko. You know when mm. Sissoko sometimes runs the counter-attack and there's almost like an altitude sickness because he's like, ah, this is a bit further forward than yeah, I expected. He's a striker. That was the problem. That was the weird thing. You're like, it's such a, it's such a specific skill, right, running the counter-attack. We saw Douglas Costa do it for Juve against Napoli, superbly. And there's just light years between his approach play and what Ocasso did. There was one chance that I think Julian Weigel hit the post at 1-1. And it wasn't a good opportunity because it was outside the box, I think. But if, if, yeah, if that had gone in, then obviously you right. would have expected Dortmund to push on. Because they did create chances. Dortmund were, it wasn't like Dortmund weren't creating anything. Right. They were just not as clinical as they should have been in front of goal. 
and way too porous at the back. You know, Butter got a second in the second half, which was a really, really lovely finish. There was this beautiful angle from behind it yeah. where um, Roman Berkey kind of spills the ball and it comes back out to him eventually. And it's this beautiful side foot it's that quite starts Tony way yeah. outside the post, but just glides in like a bowling the turf. Ball. It was so lovely. And then Sebastian Anderson made it three with quarter of an hour to go. And then, and then Dortmund just, I mean, they kind of pushed a little bit, but they didn't, you didn't really think it was in, in doubt. But the crowd atmosphere as well, if we just sort of give people a sort of a quick idea of what it's like to play at Union, when you arrive in Kerpenick, Kerpenick is a little bit removed from the sort of centre of Berlin. It's about 20 minutes out from one of the main terminals. So arriving in, in Kerpenick, a sort of, not suburb of Berlin, but sort of like sort of... It's kind of southeast Berlin, yeah. really close to a lot of lakes. It's like a, it, there's, a, there's the Altstadt, which is its own town, which is, if you go on the, the boat trips from center, to the centre of Berlin out to like the Muggelsee, for example, yeah. you'll go through the Kerpenick Altstadt. You no, know, actually it's like quite, there's elements of Upton Park about it in terms of the energy. Well, it's lovely when you come off the S-Bahn state, uh, out of the S-Bahn and you walk through the old forest. Yes, exactly. And it's it's really lovely. It's like a really nice walk through And it's its 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 own atmosphere, its own universe. And so when you're in that space, you know, a lot of the form, I mean, that's why, and actually the form of teams that arrive, I was going to say another cliche there, out the window, (laughs) which is actually what makes Leipzig's win so impressive. For Leipzig to come to Union and beat them 4-0 that result will look so much better because obviously Leipzig are playing some great stuff this season. Yes, maybe get onto them in a minute. Yeah, as the season goes on, Leipzig's win will look a lot, lot better because there are not many teams that will come to that environment and come away with, yeah. with, with too much. I mean, I it's just a very unique Bundesliga stadium now. Yeah, you know, very special. I mean, it's very small, three stands are fully terraced, yeah. manual scoreboard. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of very unique. There. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, they will take points at home this season. They will, and Bayern won six one against Mainz. It's very kind of Bayern y. Very Bayern. And they've got Perisic in now. Coutinho started too, I think. So another goal for Alfonso Davis. The, the reason I say another one, because his only other goal came in the Bundesliga came against Mainz. Oh, wow. There you go. Stat. There are some teams that like there's some players that really love certain teams, aren't there? Yeah. Um yeah. should we talk about league leaders? The only team with a hundred percent record in the Bundesliga is Rasenball Sport Leipzig. Which is something that was I think I think a few of us foresaw that. That was a really good game, that, on Friday. Friday night game in Gladbach. I actually want to start by praising someone from Gladbach, Braille Imbolo, who I really enjoyed watching last season at Schalke, and he made the move to Gladbach, and he got booked super early in like the second minute or something like that. And um, but he caused Leipzig a lot of problems all game. And this game was actually not decided until... A little bit later. I mean, it ended up... It ended up the the scoreline in the end was fairly sort of conclusive 3-1. Yeah, well, but, I mean, Leipzig were two up, two goals from Timo Werner. One just before... Not long before half-time, one just after half-time. But it felt in the balance. It felt yeah, balance. I mean, it never yeah. felt completely done. Actually, I thought that Gladbach had the better chances before Leipzig scored. Actually, we've discussed this before, Timo Werner's movement. And a key feature of the first game when Union basically dismantled... So were dismantled by RB Leipzig was Werner's movement. And if you look at how... Nagelsmann seems to have galvanised him. And the real challenge, the real challenge, if you look at Leipzig's results last year and their, their goals conceded, they had the best defence in the Bundesliga. They conceded like maybe 20 mm. goals last year in the Bundesliga, but their attack was, I think, 20 goals worse. And what we've seen in these early games is that Nagelsmann has got that attack working in sync and creating chances at an impressive rate. Yeah, they, I mean, they have scored nine, conceded two. Only Bayern have scored more, but they scored obviously six against Mainz. Um, and yeah, no team has conceded less than Leipzig. Only Wolfsburg have conceded the same. So three wins in three, nine points, plus seven goal difference. They are top, uh, Bayern a second, Wolfsburg are third, Leverkusen a fourth, Dortmund a fifth currently. Um, should we go to La Liga? Yeah, let's do it. Oh my God, La Liga. Oh my <laughs> God, La Liga. <laughs> well, well, well. Oh my God. We had a great Bass derby on Friday between Athletic and Sociedad. Uh, 2-0 Athletic everything involving Athletic is just good Raul Garcia gonna Raul Garcia I love Athletic this- I really do it was a nasty injury for Ilya Amendi actually who is a player I really like I, I really, love him I really wished he'd kind of worked out at Real wrong move wrong time yeah but um, Ilya Amendi it looked that, nasty that, him and Thiago in that under 21 when Spain yeah. won he was sensational it was he reminded me a bit of Ian Brady Oh, I know I'm throwing this back, but like it was the way he sort of just skipped through midfield and always knew exactly what pass he was going to make. Mm. 
and just, I mean, him and Tiago were just on a different level. And I, I felt like they both, that's a funny generation that, that, that Spain, because Tiago eventually found himself at Bayern, but kind of was a bit stop-start at first, injuries primarily. But he's now completely accomplished there. I was kind of hoping Yara Mendy would go to another club and just become the foundation of their midfield. Yeah. For a long time. Yeah. Somewhere like Arsenal, weirdly enough, actually. Oh, like actually, that. I really wanted him at Arsenal at one point, but you yeah. know, there's not a lot of players that I would have <laughs> taken at various points. Osasuna 2, Barcelona 2. Hot take. Osasuna is becoming the new Sociedad for Barca. Osasuna came up. I know there's only three games, but they're currently sick. They're undefeated this season. That, that, that fixture was a real scorpion in the sock for Barca. <laughs> now, they're, they're really interesting. They're, 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 um, their configuration in midfield, Frankie de Jong starting, Busquets, but then starting with Sergio Roberto. And I'm like, but Arthur gives you so much more. Scored and, a lovely goal. Yeah, and look, I, I really, Valverde, like, I'm a big fan of Valverde's, but also I'm like, I don't know what it is, but it's like this strange conservatism overtakes him at crucial points. Kevin Williams wrote a really good point on Twitter about how the board has been so focused on chasing Neymar all summer that they've essentially forgot to sign a really, really decent winger. You know what Barca do and Bayern don't? Barca, they make the perfect the enemy of the good. They want this of the optimal solution. If the optimal solution isn't there, they, they're not interested. They're not interested. They're, they're the pure, they're, they're politically pure. They, they want the, the perfect solution. They don't compromise. Bayern are like, mm, we need to keep winning. Okay, practical. Mm, Perisic is around. Screw it. We'll drop him in there. Like, and the pragmatism, when Barca have been pragmatic, it's worked. Arturo Vidal, it worked. Rakitic. Oh, Rakitic. He's not a Barcelona player. Mm, you got a treble in his first season. He scored the opening goal within 10 minutes of the Champions League final. Hey, people, like the pragmatic works. You'd literally have proof that it works. Yeah, but also they've gone through this period of where they've had such a clear philosophy and identity and that has just been blown to bits. So Barcelona are trying to hold on to this La Masia graduate, Cruyffian, Pep Guardiola identity. And it's just not there anymore. Barcelona are in danger of drawing the wrong conclusions from the La Masia golden generation. And the wrong conclusion is that this is a thing you can do every so often. No, because actually so many stars aligned for that to happen. You not only had the incredible coaching system, you had the arrival of generational, not just generational, but all-time talents. There is a very strong argument that when football's final game is played 10,000 years from now and aliens, you know, inhabit Earth and we've moved (laughs) on to new sports, there's a very strong argument that top 10 midfielders of all time will include Iniesta, Busquets and Xavi. All-time talents, right? So. People looking at where's La Masia going to come back? Well, it's, it's, it's still there in a sense. But in the meantime, while you're waiting for that team where eight players come from La Masia, which may happen 20 years from now, in the meantime, you need a hybrid. And Frankie de Jong is a great example of that. If you can't get the players in-house, go out in the world and find them and devote real time to finding them because the Neymar thing has degraded everybody. I didn't think it was possible for a club to be degraded more than Neymar himself, but Barcelona actually seemed to have managed it. That's mm. pretty incredible to have degraded themselves in the pursuit of a player who has been in the process the last year of degrading himself. So yeah, the Barca's failure to sign a winger. And this is interesting in the context of the season because Atleti are doing very non-Atleti things and they're winning. So you have Atleti winning with... Good weekend for my uh, youngest son. Good weekend for both my sons. Well, two of my many sons. Yeah, Joao. Fantastic. Joao did well. As and then after Matteo did brilliantly well earlier on in the day with a roll with a, with a nod to roll Darm, now, Duzzi, that is. With, a, with a nod to roll Darm, now calling him fantastic mr felix oh lovely that's uh, so i'm calling him now um so fantastic mr felix got um a goal from close range but the slightly worrying thing for aletti is that thomas lamar is not yet being the guy um on the assist that we were hoping he's looked good actually against um ibar who have a habit of knocking off better teams and was well, the first time they've to- lost at the wonder yeah, and they went 2-0 up. Yeah. Um, but really impressive play from uh, the fullbacks, Trippier and, and Lodi as well. Looking good. Trippier's been really good, man. Really yeah, good. It's been wonderful. And they love him there. They love him. Atleti sold really well. They sold really well to, to sell Griezmann that time. It was the right move. One of those times where it's the right move for club and player. Yeah, I think he'll do really well at Barcelona. Yeah. But, but I think also Atleti made a good decision. They obviously got a really good player with the money in Jao Felix. So all good. Absolutely. So we're going to save all the questions and stuff for that bumper mailbag that we'll put out on Wednesday night, I think we'll put it up. And for now, don't forget, you can check us on social media at Stadio on Twitter, at Stadio Football on Instagram. Stadio.football is the website where you can get in touch. 
And we're playing out this week on Eddie Kendrick's My People Hold On. It's a big favour of ours. Oh man, it's a classic. So yeah, we're going to play out on this and then don't forget to check the mailbag up on Wednesday night. See you then. See you, bye. Oh.